Hey everyone, this is Julian, and you are listening to the Clear Cash Podcast. As always, I'm here with Nick. What's up, everybody? What's up? What's up? What's up? How you Julian? doing? How you feeling? I'm doing great. I'm I'm medium energy Nick today. Medium energy? It's a medium energy kind of Wednesday night? Yeah, it is. I can respect that. What are you playing these days? Have you had time to play anything new? I am still playing Dark Souls 3. Um, I'm on uh, Slave Knight Gael, who's the final boss in the Ringed City DLC. The Ringed City. And is arguably the final boss in the whole Dark Souls series. And uh, He's, he's kind of like the penultimate boss, right? He's like the ultimate boss. Because he, uh, he's technically the penultimate boss because you fight him before you fight Soul of Cinder. Right. But his fight takes place at the end of time basically he's killed every other being in existence and you're the final being that he's left to kill fuck that's intense it's pretty intense it's a fucking rad fight but uh i i can't find the right setup for it and i I keep taking him down to the last fifth of health and then getting caught in like a flurry and fucking suddenly dying Uh uh-huh so dark souls 3 is is the last Dark Souls, right? Have have from software Probably, yeah. said that? Uh, I think the the producer has at least said this is my last Dark Souls. Yeah, it seems that that's like a conclusion, yeah, at least, to the to the Souls series, and it ties back to the other Souls games in ways that d- distinctly imply, like, you know, we're not gonna do more of this, right? shit dude maybe we should just become a like a souls podcast because honestly (laughs) (laughs) yeah right because i that's all i've been playing too and uh, when you started talking to me uh, about dark souls 3 again that you you had just gotten back into it and you were finishing it finally Mm -hmm. i went back and i I started playing again created a couple new characters uh and then you know what i decided that it was finally time to play something other than dark souls 3 Mm because i've said it before the truth is, I've only played Dark Souls three. It was right. my my entrance into the Soul series, and I, I've been too scared. I've been too too much of a silly willy to go back and play the others. Even though I've had Dark Souls two, Scholar of the First Sin, uh-huh. uh, for for Xbox One for like three years, right. and I've never played it. Uh, so I finally decided it was time to pop it in and uh, and see what the hubbub was about. And you know, I thought I had played Dark Souls two before, but. It, I realized as I started playing it that I've only ever played Demon Souls and then like the first hour of Dark Souls, and uh, I, I I couldn't I couldn't play D- Demon Souls. Uh-huh. I I just couldn't. There there was <clears throat> a section that's probably about an hour and a half into the game where you're on these like um, castle walls, and yeah. it was just impossible. I couldn't do it. Uh, and then I had a similar experience in the area that's right after the asylum demon mm-hmm. in in dark souls uh, where i was the level of frustration that was too much for me i understand and and then i had the experience playing dark souls 3 it's great love yeah. that game to death yeah uh endlessly replayable for me uh and so i thought that going back to play the other entrance in, in, entries in the series would be trivial to me because i i had so much experience playing dark souls 3 not the case Dark Souls 2 is hard as fuck. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> I remember. Intense. Yeah, dude, it, it is. It's, it, it feels the, see the frustrating thing for me playing it is that Dark Souls 3 is, is perfected. Mm-hmm. I think it's like all, it's like summation of all of the mechanics from the Dark Souls games past. Mm-hmm. And it's very different. Uh, what I've learned playing Dark Souls 2 is that 3 is a very, very different game, but it seems to be like the perfected version of of what they're working towards would you agree with that or do you think it's wrong to no, assume I, I still think dark souls one is the better of the trilogy uh okay. well if you want to call it a quadrilogy i think dark souls one is still the best um i've played and beaten demon well i've almost played and beaten all of them at this point because i only have slave knight gael and then the soul of cinder who have already fought several times um so i'm just going to say that I've, I've beaten all of them at this point and um Dark Souls 1 is the only one that I've played more than once and uh, its world design is the best in my opinion. Um, I think the problem that I have 
well, Dark Souls 2, you are running into the same issues that everyone experiences. Uh, it has the most systems of any of the Dark Souls games. And um, some of them are extraneous. And a lot of the steps that you have to take to accomplish some of the goals that you need to accomplish in order to progress in that game don't make any intrinsic sense. Uh, like you probably didn't know about the uh, soul exchange guy, the magician who will turn boss souls into weapons. Right. Uh, well, I know that from Dark Souls 3. No, I mean, and I'm not saying you don't know about that concept, but you didn't know where he was or what you had to do to find him. Yeah, no, I, I, I didn't, I had found him and talked to him even, but uh -huh. I didn't realize that's what he did because, uh, he didn't, I don't remember in his dialogue, him saying anything like that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then also he, uh, w when you talk to him in order to trade, trade souls with him, you have to select the trade option. Right. And I didn't, I didn't know to do that. I, I just looked at, I just pressed buy and then looked at his wares uh, mm -hmm. and nowhere in his dialogue or, or his appearance or anything. Did it give away the fact that he was the guy that you traded with? Right. Um, he's not even the only guy. Oh, okay. There's well, another it person. Wasn't, it wasn't until after you told me that it was him that I went back and, and I traded for some stuff, which I don't even know I'll use, which is uh, part of the, the, not the problem, but you're, you're right to say that it's the layer, the layers in which you um, have to navigate to build a character are mm -hmm. way more tedious, it seems, mm -hmm. and, and less obvious than it is in Dark Souls 3, which I have the most experience with. In, in Dark Souls 3, it's very easy to build a character from 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 level one or whatever, mm -hmm. and you immediately can follow a path that's made for that character, sort of. Mm -hmm. um, like if you want to do a pyromancy build, if you want to do a, a faith uh, miracle build or heavy heavy strength, um, you, you, those, it's more immediate. As you level up early, you begin to notice those things right away, mm -hmm. whereas and this has just been my experience with, with Dark Souls 2, it seems like the, that like level of character building is more out of reach, mm -hmm. um, at least for, for, for new players. And I, I've looked at guides that people have online for like sp uh, specific builds and like how to build towards them. And it's all like late game stuff or a lot of the stuff as descriptors for how to build a character. It's like um, really, really like, intricate and weird and it doesn't seem obtainable yeah uh, well granted like you and i both started i at least start every game as deprived and i know that you started this one as deprived as well i did yes yeah and that is a decision that i make because i feel like a badass when i start and then i'm inevitably frustrated by having made that decision uh, right and dark souls 2 is probably the one where i suffered that decision the most we have literally nothing. I mean, yeah. at least in Dark Souls 3, you start with a club and a shield. In Dark right. Souls 2, you have nothing. <laughs> right. And you can't you can't fight when you have nothing. Like, no, you, not I, really. I couldn't fight anything. And I, t I was texting you, and as I was playing, I'm like, dude, I don't know if I can do this. I might have to start a new game as something with a weapon because I I wasn't able to kill anything to obtain souls. I, I was fucking hollow-fied till... My health was like a, a quarter of what it should be. Right. Um, and then and then I found a broken straight sword and I went back and just farmed souls and, and then it started to click. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I built up momentum and I, I'm, I'm running through the game at a good pace now. Mm -hmm. I haven't had too much trouble with bosses. I still haven't figured out like where I want to take the character I'm using. Uh, right now it's like heavy strength, heavy decks. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I might reallocate uh, my, 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 um, my points to be just a, maybe like a heavy strength, heavy faith build, um, or maybe pyromancy. I don't know. Cause I have one of the th the items that will let you reallocate your, your skill points yeah or your souls points or whatever. Yeah. I think, um, a strength build is smart. Strike damage does the most damage consistently. Yeah, I'm dual wielding fucking hammers right now. It's, oh, it's pretty sick actually. Yeah. Do you do the power stance? Well, so I, I was using the power stance after you told me you could do that because right. I didn't realize that was a thing. Uh, so, and I had a, a club in uh, my right hand and in, in my left hand, I had a short sword yeah. and I was using that for a bit, which was really effective and, and felt good. Um, but then I uh, met the blacksmith in the Lost Bastille uh -huh. who, um, after you light the brazier in his little workroom, he reveals a chest that has 
a uh, blacksmith's hammer in it, right. which has an A scale for strength. Oh, yeah. Um, so now I'm dual wielding the club and the blacksmith hammer, both reinforced. Yeah. And dude, they don't power stance, but, but uh, I have my stamina up enough to where I can get like six back and forth just overhead swings with them. And it, it, that, that feels really good. That's tight. Yeah, Have you I'm tried switching that. hands? Because it, it may be that you can only power stance with the weapon in the correct hand. Oh, I haven't. Uh, they're both hammers. And mm. I don't know if that has anything to do oh, with it. Oh, they are both the ha- hammers. Okay. They both have descriptions as hammers. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Probably not then. Well, um, yeah. yeah. I, Dark, Dark Souls 2 is the most system heavy. And uh, it's also the most outright w- willfully punishing uh, enemy placement that I've experienced in the Dark Souls games. Um, some of the run-ups to the bosses is just unpleasant, uh, like in a really frustrating way. And oh on top God. of it, um, Dark Souls 2 introduces this concept of eliminating enemies if you continually do kill them too many times. So if you spawn in a bonfire, kill a bunch of enemies, die, spawn again, mm-hmm. do it over again. If you do that enough times, those enemies will disappear, uh, which can be good because you know right. maybe that you're getting them out of your way. Or it can be bad because who the fuck are you going to farm from now? Um, Yeah. Uh, So I have a couple responses to that in particular. One being I ran into that particular scenario uh, last time I was playing where there's a run up from a bonfire in the Huntsman's Cops, or mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it was supposed to be corpse, but no. I, don't, or I don't know what, what is cops? I don't know. I, was, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I've that heard word. that word before, but I don't know what it is. Anyway, Huntsman Cops is like this wooded area with a lot of poison shit in it. There's a lot of poison in this game. Yeah. Um, but there's a run from a bonfire in Huntsman's Cops uh, that runs up alongside of a, a path and is just fucking full of these guys that come down from the top of the cliffs I think they're like standing on these poles and they're like elite guards that have these cross like sickles mm-hmm. and you have to, you have to move very slowly. So they drop down one by one and take them out one by one. Cause if, if you run through and they all come down, right. you're dead, they yeah. will kill you. There's no way to defend it. It's fucked. Right. And so you have to run up this side, kill like three or four smaller enemies and then lure those things out one by one, which takes like 10, 10, 15 minutes. And then you have to cross a bridge. And at the end of that bridge is a um, scripted invader who has a great shield and a, and a club. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't kill him. Um, and so the whole process of running from the bonfire up the side of the canyon, getting across the bridge, killing, you because ha- you have to kill everything. You, yeah. you can't stop or you can't run through it. Um, it takes like 20 minutes. And it was just uh, like excruciating. Um, and this is the run up to the, um, uh, God, what's it called? The the Skeleton. chariot, oh, the chariot yeah. boss fight. Yeah. Which isn't a bad boss fight actually. No, that's a, um, that's a cool one. It's pretty trivial. It's a really fun one and, and it's a really interesting one. Um, and that's one of the other things. The other thing I just wanted to comment on was that so far the bosses in Dark Souls 2 haven't been that bad for me. No, like, the, there are many more bosses in Dark Souls 2 than there are in other Dark Souls games. There are like 30 bosses in this game. Um, and for the most part, they're not that difficult. A lot of them are really interesting. Um, a lot of them mimic the um, Artorias fight from Dark Souls, which you haven't played. But um, if you played uh, Dark Souls 3, there's a set called the Wolf Knight set. And that is Artorius's set. Well, aren't isn't Artorius the abyss? Doesn't it have something to do with the abyss watchers? He fights like an abyss watcher. I don't remember if he is an abyss watcher, but he's, I believe, in the lore, he's the first one to have killed Quinn or burned out the flame or whatever the fuck. And it doesn't matter. He's tight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But there are some bosses later in the game that are just extremely fucking hard and and they fight like him. They're, and what I mean by that is that they are very like one-on-one, you're trading blows. They have gnarly movesets. They're fast, big yeah. swords, you know, really cool fights. Uh, but some of them are really are Those like are the on ones I struggle with more than anything. Right. Uh, the bosses, the, the oversized bosses. Yeah. 
little easier. Yeah. You, you know, you can just do the, your dodge rolls to the back of them or the side of them. Yeah. Um, but it's no so far, and none of the bosses have really provided too much difficulty. I'd say the one I had to try um, more than others was surprisingly the the rat boss, the rat vanguard. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, just because I just the petrification was gnarly in that you get cursed and you're you done. You know what? That reminds me is that the rat uh, covenant. Yeah. Uses um, if you're a member of it, you invade people who are in the rat dungeon yeah. area, and uh, they use the pharaoh's lockstones, and those and the uh, branches of yore that um, turn depetrify stat- the statues. Yeah. Um, that's that's cool. Those concepts are cool because those are limited items. You can't depetrify every statue in the game in one run, unless you you probably can if you do like a trick or something. But you're not supposed to be able to do that. Oh, um, I didn't. I I kind of figured that was the case, but that's interesting because some of those. Um, well, it does seem that some of the areas that they, they unlock are optional, and mm-hmm. there's even a lot of bosses that are optional in this in this game in in Dark Souls too. Right. Um, those. Um, the Pharaoh's Lockstones, which can either trigger a trap or reveal a gift, basically, or, or a path. Those are cool. Uh, I like that customization of play. Like, you can decide if you want to go off on these little paths. Uh, that's really neat. I also like um, the uh, giant seeds. I don't know if you've encountered those yet. Yeah, that, that's, that makes it so the enemies in your world attack invaders, right? Okay, yes. So if you expend them as an... There's that. There's also the giant soul thing. You, you Basically, you find these items that you find petrified giants and you use the items and they transpose you into like a giant world where you oh, okay. are dealing I, yeah, with giants. Yeah, I was reading a little bit about this. Right, yeah, I was reading cool. there's some mechanic where if you defeat certain giants or do something with those giant memories it makes the final boss in the game weaker huh i so yeah dark souls 2 is a super complicated game right and uh that's neat but it's also frustrating it's also like the longest fucking game by a (laughs) by a massive long shot the deal i my playthrough the first playthrough that game i got like 120 hours on it first playthrough and I didn't even finish all the DLC because it was extraordinarily hard. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when you see the DLC, be wary. Fuck. <laughs> I, I know. And it's like, I, I'm kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place right now because I want to, I like playing the dark souls games. What I've realized now is that uh, I like playing them when there's the community is really involved in them. Like when mm. I was playing Dark Souls 3 heavily, it was within the first year of it being out. Right. So everyone was playing it who's a fan of the Souls series. Right. Right now, not many people, if anybody at all, is playing Dark Souls 2 Scholar on Xbox One mm-hmm. where I'm playing it. Um, I don't I don't see summon signs. I've only been invaded once. Um, and that's because probably uh, because um, Dark Souls Remastered just came out like a month ago and everyone's playing that. So I'm kind of like FOMO on that game right now. So I don't know. And I have Bloodborne too. I'm mm-hmm. so fucking into the soul shit right now. It's it's weird. Like, I guess I'm kind of like this as a person. Like, I, I just envelop myself in, in one thing and get mm-hmm. super into it. Uh, and right now that's, that's Soulsborne stuff. Dude, so. you should get Dark Souls Remastered. Dark Souls is a fucking awesome game. Okay. All yeah. right. I'm going to do it then. You'll find people to fight too. I know. I, I will know. say it, it, Dark Souls 2, uh, I played that while Dark Souls 3 was was popular, and I had some of the best PvP encounters in 2. Um, there really? are certain regions that are very popular for PvP, and I stumbled on them, and they were they were fun. Did you ever get into those like arena situations? Like no, you not found in 2. Dark Souls 3? I got no. into several in 3, but I never got into any in 2. Okay. Yeah. Um you should get Dark Souls remastered, dude. All right, dude. I'm going to do it. It's um, funny because I've been playing Hollow Knight on Switch, which... Uh, very makes, Souls-like. Yeah. Gets a lot of comparisons. Yeah, so I was thinking about those comparisons, and I think it's unrealistic to say that any game that makes you drop what you have where you die and then go get it again when you play, like, 
I don't think that that's the only thing that makes a Souls game. Yeah. That's an element. But I think what that element uh, is tapping into is the intensity of the risk reward system that those games um, operate within. Uh, there are a few games that make your decisions uh, happen on a moment to moment basis of whether or not you should move forward with what you're doing. You, you know, like, should I even fight this next enemy, let alone finish this level? And I think risk reward is uh, super compelling as a concept. Hopefully developers find new ways to employ that concept. Uh, you know what? Battle, Battle Royale is a good example of that. Uh, you know, how much time am I going to spend finding new items before I run into another player or should I fight this guy right now or should I run? Yeah, Everybody's I mean, into that risk reward shit right now. It, it, truly. And it's funny that not a lot of people speak on that as like the driving mechanic. It's always the comparison, as you just said, like instead of comparing um, Dark Souls and Hollow Knight in that way, it's it's you drop souls or whatever. <laughs> yeah, totally. So that's like the basic way to look at it, I guess. Yeah. Um, all right. So we have a lot to talk about regarding a show that we've talked about on here uh, occasionally. We had a whole episode dedicated to it, which I think was like in the middle of the season or maybe yeah. after three or four. We had a, a full episode in which we talked about our feelings on Westworld, where it was headed and and what we had seen so far in season two. And uh, the season has drawn to a close. And uh, I want to start this. I want to preface this by saying um, I, I read today that 30% less viewers watched the season two finale than the season one finale. And that should <laughs> that should say enough right there. <laughs> all right. So, like, first of all, we're going to talk about the whole show, you know, with no reservations. So spo right. spoiler warning, I guess. And then um, absolutely, yeah. And then second of all, I was so milk toast. No, I wasn't so milk toast. I was so lukewarm on this season that I was content to never really talk about it again because it did nothing for me in any meaningful way. But the way that it ended is just really like really frustrating in in a profound way compared to season one. Yeah, and I, I'm I was thinking back on on how I felt after watching episodes of season one, and I always was really excited to think about it and talk about it. Mm -hmm. Like I'd watch an episode on on Sunday night, and I'd spend the rest of the night thinking about the episode, thinking about the characters, wanting to talk about it, and I I rarely felt that in in season two. Uh, I was asked by people, you said, "Oh, what do you what did you think of of that episode?" Where, where, where do you think things are going? I just was like, I don't fucking know, dude. I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, let's get into it then. Yeah. Uh, so let's, okay. Well, let's cover the episode, the finale in terms of like, let's break it down by characters, well, right? Okay. Let's go over the, let's go over the first season briefly. Okay. Or second season briefly. So ultimately second season starts the hosts of, enacted an uprising and they're killing all the guests and uh then bernard starts having these flashbacks mm -hmm. about what happens immediately after the uprising all the way to when he's found by a rescue party sent by the company and yeah you're immediately you have this immediate sense of of disorientation as with Bernard, I mean, you're you're supposed to be made to felt feel that along with him because mm -hmm. he's waking up on this beach. You have he has no idea what the hell is going on. Seemingly, right. no one knows what the hell is going on. Time is completely fucked. Uh, the 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 structure of of the season uh, from that point, uh, you're seeing from two sides. You're seeing what is essentially two weeks after mm -hmm. uh, the event of the upheaval, and then moments after the upheaval the rebellion so you see uh scenes throughout season two are that are from two weeks ahead and then you follow season two um which is the the story the the timeline directly after dolores rebellion so you're following right. these two timelines right so 
Maeve basically has superpowers. She can control any of the other hosts at this point. Right. And she wants to use her position of freedom and power to go and find this daughter that she remembers from a previous storyline. It's her core drive. It's yeah. Cornerstone. Protect uh, her daughter at all costs. Yeah. Go get her. Get that baby. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dolores wants to use the uprising to kill all the guests and then go to what uh does is she refer to it as the valley beyond yeah she is okay. one of the the characters who who exclaims is the valley beyond i think she's the first person to say it actually right so she takes teddy and uh her followers to go to the valley beyond which she describes as a weapon and she wants to use that weapon to destroy everything in her words um, the man. Yeah, of- all the characters throughout season two refer to what this valley beyond is as different things. It's called a weapon. It's called uh, uh, some place of of freedom, of peace. Um, it's called a doorway. I mean, uh, season one had a a season title of the maze, mm-hmm. and season two two's title was the door. Oh. Um, and and so uh, the the valley beyond is also referred to as a door in season two. Okay. Uh, and then meanwhile, Charlotte from the company is trying to find, uh, Abernathy, the father figure from Dolores's storyline, uh, who has apparently holding something in his head that they need, uh, in order to do something for the company. And she mm-hmm. also wants to go to the Valley Beyond location to use that thing. Exactly. And that's one of the slow reveals of season two is what is in Peter Abernathy's head. What does his, the the foreign code within his code do? And that's one of the slow reveals, one of the longest taking reveals uh, in season two is, is knowing what that is. Right. And, and then throughout the story or throughout the season, Bernard is pulled into everybody's storyline eventually in different ways and is used to enact whatever goals that they have. Yeah, he's used to, well, he's essentially a, a narrator, uh, but an unreliable one. Mm-hmm. But he's, the the writers of the show made him an unreliable narrator by making him broken. Right. So we, we he he goes into bits of, of, of monologue or, or whatever, dialogue with other characters, and uh, it's left to the audience to decide what he's talking about through his broken muttering and trying to figure out uh, what is r- real, what is in the right timeline, and, and what the fuck is he talking about, really? I mean, right. that's all of season two, is trying to figure out what the fuck Bernard is saying or talking about. <laughs> yeah, I can't understand him. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so uh, ultimately, the Valley Beyond is the forge, which is, well, basically, it comes from or is the forge, which is this database that stores images of er- mental images of every guest who's ever been in the park and those images have been captured by the hats that they wear which is one of the greatest (laughs) fucking reveals you were loving it dude and i loved it too i couldn't believe it i stood out of my seat dude so this is found when uh william the man in black is confronted by his daughter uh who has found him in the park and she's trying to take him back and she's talking to him and he's like, oh, I got to I got to do this. We, the forge is so important. I got to go check it out. She's like, what is this? And he says, oh, it's this image, these images of every guest. And she says, well, how did you capture them? And <laughs> when, when it cuts back to him, I'm, I'm thinking, no, not the hats. And then he just slowly points at his hat. <laughs> <laughs> which is like such a cop-out dude like it, it for one it doesn't even make sense at all uh, no dude like half of the people in the japanese samurai world aren't wearing hats they don't fucking wear hats i know it's such and it's such a disservice like they truly did a disservice to all the other worlds all the other parks right because we know yeah. that there's more than at least three parks right we have right. Westworld, raj world and uh, samurai world whatever, whatever whatever it was called right um and we know there's more than that i think they mentioned that there's six parks mm-hmm. at one time and I, they did obviously explore raj world briefly for like uh, like three 10 minutes. minutes yeah yeah 
Uh, and then they had a full episode dedicated to, like, it was probably like an episode and a half dedicated to Maeve and her companions ex- uh, going on a small quest through Samurai World. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rest of the season serves those parks in no other way. And it just seems like throughout all of this, there would be more attention drawn to those other parks. And it's and it's clear that Westworld is like the crux. It's it's the central park. Mm-hmm. Uh, these other ones are smaller offshoots in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to completely ignore them for most of the season and just have these small adventures into them or brief interludes, um, I think is a, is a real disservice to 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 what could have been done. Yeah, there's a lot of storytelling opportunity and using these other parks in interesting ways. And the instant that season two starts, you can't. I mean, the whole park is in disarray. They're no longer functioning. So yeah. that's never going to happen anymore um, from season or episode one of season two, uh, which is something you have, like I ultimately accepted. But then they actually go there with one of the writers. What's his name again? Lee. Lee, yeah. And they go to the samurai world and they're exploring it and the hosts are noticing, Oh, I recognize that person in me. That person in samurai world is a version is the samurai version of me. And he's like, yeah, like, what do you think I'm going to write 2000 stories? I just crit <laughs> right. for myself. And I'm like, well, that's, I mean, that's, that cheapens the whole thing. And it's also like the writers tacitly acknowledging they weren't creative enough to come up with something interesting for these worlds episodes. Yeah. And I, that's how, I guess that's what they felt was Lee's character, right? Was Uh that he was this, and he was shown in the previous season to be kind of like this drunk who was uh, infatuated with living his life through his characters. Mm -hmm. And they explore that more in season two, but uh, his characters is flawed, not in the way that, um, he, he's driven, but the way that the, he's written, mm-hmm. he's flawed, right. immensely flawed. There and, are, and it was shown in, in the season finale how flawed that character is. Right. Yeah, really. Um, so the, the hat reveal kind of, it, it kind of just spiraled out of control from there. The That was in episode nine, right? Yes. Um Yes. Episode eight, I think, was the one that was dedicated uh, to telling a Ketchita's story. You're right. And episode nine was the hat reveal. So episode eight, which is ultimately from the uh, Ghost Tribe's perspective on their understanding of what Westworld is and their place in it, uh, I thought it was well done. I just don't think that it had anything interesting to say. It, it was basically a retelling of the experiences that we've already been shown, but in a different language from a different cultural perspective and not, not much unique was gleaned from that perspective. Um, though it was sympathetic. Um, I just feel like it could have been more uniquely compelling. It it feels similar to how samurai world is parallel to Westworld in that way. They both right. effectively tell the same story. Yeah, I get that for sure. And I, and I, I honestly, I, I didn't understand how uh, Akechita was able to gain consciousness just by simply looking at this maze. I think the maze is meant to be a, ver- a visual trigger from okay. Arthur. That's his name, right? Ford, Arthur Ford. Yeah, yeah. from Arthur. Yeah, Ford. I kind of okay. That that was the explanation I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, like. I don't know. Just felt off to me that all Akechita had to do was look down at this maze and it would just trigger. But I, I, if that's how it works, that's how it works. So that's that's another thing about season two is that I felt like season one was very effective in suggesting the notion of programming uh, com- being comparable to uh, consciousness and um, uh, from a, like a basic program programmatic perspective. I appreciated that it, it made sense in that way. Um, it, but it didn't make too many pains to take too many pains to, uh, explain itself, which is, which was good. It, it, there was some mystery to how those things worked, but it was, it was believable. Um, season two, uh, did too much to try to, uh, make things happen programmatically 
that it could no longer explain from its existing logic. Um, so it had to break that existing logic by making some magical programmatic thing happen. Um, and I think you're touching on a catch to looking at the maze and then becoming conscious of it um, is a good example of that to a degree. Uh, but more what I'm alluding sure. to is um, Dolores claiming that all of her personalities have combined. Uh, like, how does she understand that? I don't understand. Mm -hmm. um, the forge, it, which they enter, her and Bernard enter, and it's sort of like an inception type scenario where it's effectively like a hologram of a real physical place and they are exploring it with their bodies um which why do they need to do that like they're ai they don't need to have things represented in a no, quote, unquote, understandable way zeros. they could fucking yeah it'd be ones and zeros they could fucking understand a file structure right i mean they need the visual to tell the story to the audience it's serving the audience not the but in doing so, so on top of it, they're being hosted by the forge itself, who is embodied in Delos's son. Uh, he uses Delos, it uses Delos's son's image to wander the physical space with them and speak to them, yes. um, which was very humanistic in that it, that's something that a person would need. That's not something that an AI, an would, AI need. would need. Right. I agree. Uh, and then it talks about human consciousness by saying, oh, I, I had uh, humans run their same scenarios 20 million times. And every time they always came back to their one lived experience flaw, experiential flaw, where they had, you know, this, this moment in their life that embodies who they are. And in, in Delos's case, it's when he like turned his back on his son. Who uh, then overdosed. Who, yeah, who then overdosed. Um, and the crux of this realization is that people never change. And that just feels so broad and <laughs> nonspecific. And, uh, it sounds like a fucking, like a high school goth, like nihilistically describing human nature. Yeah. And I guess, I guess I could see that the writers, what they were trying to express is that at this point, uh, at the end of the season, humans are the ones that are predictable mm -hmm. humans are the ones that live by patterns and these hosts these robotic creatures live live beyond that mm -hmm. that that we're more robotic than what the hosts are right could you see that i i could but then we can come back to mave who at the start of the season announces i'm going to find my daughter and, you know, against all logic and reason, which fine, like that is, could potentially be an interest, interesting way to explore, um, um, instinct, right? Motherly mm -hmm. instinct, human instinct. Uh, they are effectively base level programming that all humans, uh, uh, oblige regardless of their surface level logic, um, which is well, something yeah, that I, mean, I discussed earlier. Right. Well, because we we did go into that a bit in our last Westworld episode, right? Where Maeve was given the directive by Ford to create this rebellion, mm -hmm. um, where she where she caused all the chaos in the control room, mm -hmm. and part of her code that Ford gave her as rebellion, the last thing was to go to the mainland. That was you. There's a shot of of Felix, I think, looking at her code, and that's one of the the directives. Mm -hmm. It's like go to the mainland is the last thing, and Maeve disobeyed that to go find her daughter instead to stay in the park and find her daughter, which is also part of her fucking code. So she didn't really disobey anything. She's still following her code where her co core directive is to protect her daughter. So th that is flawed in itself. She disobeyed one code to follow her natural code, which is to protect her daughter. Yeah. Which, which is itself predictable. Yeah. So, so. Uh, it, it, it inconsistent. The, one of the, okay. So I love science fiction because Ultimately, good science fiction operates on a cohesive uh, world. They they build cohesive logic, cohesive world building, and then they operate within those constraints to tell their stories. And when you violate when you violate those constraints, you undermine the uh, the world that you've developed. 
um, because anything goes at that point. It's no longer science fiction. It's fantasy, which is another, which is another totally fine storytelling, uh, platform, right? But it's, it's different and it has different limitations and, and it, it, I feel like Westworld, it has become a, a fantasy story in season two in a way that mm-hmm. it was much more strict about its consistent logic in season one, which was very compelling to me and they dropped it. Um, but they also, they're also trying to operate like they're still working within it and they're not. I see. So do you mean fantasy by like how easy it seemed for the plot to, to wave its hand and for just magic to happen? Quote yeah, unquote. yeah, totally dude. Like if you, okay. So classic, fantasy image for me i i for a long time could not stand fantasy for this very reason um this notion of two wizards blasting each other with rays of magic and they're putting all their energy into it and you're looking at it and you're like i don't understand i can't i intrinsically cannot understand what they're doing because it it doesn't make any sense and then one of them it just suddenly comes up with more magic and blasts the other guy (laughs) <laughs> right and uh fantasy often falls back on that trapping of just pulling shit out of your ass <laughs> which is which can be exciting and if you enter the story like accepting that anything goes because magic that's fine but when sci-fi abandons its trappings because it's like painted itself into a corner and then just breaks its own rules to paint itself back out I feel like it becomes fantasy at that point. Like the only thing separating the two is the aesthetic. Yeah. And maybe, maybe, uh, Westworld season two tried to take too much, borrow too much from game of Thrones. And that's how you ended up walking away with, with that feeling. It's, I, I don't know. I, I guess, yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, well, let's get into like the specifics of, uh, the finale. Um, and we, we've gone into it a bit with, with what they find in the valley beyond what the forge is. Um, but let's, let's look at Maeve's, uh, summation, uh, the summation of her story in, in season two. Um, she arrives at the valley beyond with her crew. Uh, a already there leading, uh, a band of other hosts to, to the valley beyond, which a and the ghost nation believe that they're headed towards a, a door that will lead them into another world that they were meant for. Mm-hmm. Um, the depiction of what that is, uh, is, is steeped in, in what their, uh, their, their culture believes. It's, it's sort of like, um, I think they, they make reference to it as, as like a, a, a heaven of sorts. Uh, and there's a lot of religious depiction also throughout season two. And, and certainly, um, where this door leads is, is also, um, a depiction of like a, a heavenly area. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so, so Maeve and her crew arrive at the Valley beyond and, uh, she, she sees her daughter there. Um, or I guess during her journey there, um, is when Lee sacrifices himself so they can oh, get right. away from an attacking band of, of humans, right. of mercenaries. And Lee's death is, is the, the stand, one of the standout things for me from this episode, because it doesn't make any fucking sense to me. Mm-hmm didn't need to die could have just you know maybe put his gun down and he provided enough distraction they were already fucking gone dude they already down the road he could have resisted arrest for he a could long have resisted time arrest he could have, he could have walked he could have put put the gun down taken off his clothes walked out there naked which is more in line with what his character does just started cranking it be, and screaming just start yes <laughs> fucking shaking his ass at him and that would have been more in line with what his character has done previously than yeah. just repeating lines from what he's written and uh then just getting shot yeah it was so dumb dude I, I pointless i really don't understand that it was it was useless to me um so then mave shows up at the valley beyond a catch there uh the zomboid clementine shows up and starts fucking infecting all the other hosts to fight each other and kill them kill themselves right um and mave essentially sacrifices herself uh, to protect her daughter, allow her daughter and her replacement mother to escape to the sublime, which is 
this virtual heaven-like world for all the hosts. Right, this beautiful meadow. And um, when her daughter turns back to look at Maeve as she, turn, as she walks into the valley beyond, Maeve quietly mouths, I love you. Yes. <laughs> it's just the most hollow sentiment. Why? Why do you love her? You don't know. She's not, uh, I don't know. Yeah. No, I just, uh, you know, the whole season two relationship between Maeve and, and her daughter just wasn't believable and and it, it didn't feel real and I don't know if it's supposed to feel real that I think they might have tried to make it feel real but it, it, as you said it was it was hollow throughout I think and even when they reunited the first time it just it didn't feel right right it felt like there was something missing there yeah um, <clears throat> so it, Akechita and his crew make it through to, to the sublime, um, which is, which is discussed, uh, during Dolores's and Bernard's discussions with the, uh, AI. The forge. The forge. Yeah. Yeah. He reveals this, this, uh, virtual world called the sublime, uh, where it's inaccessible to humans and it's a place where all the hosts can be truly free. Are they truly free? I don't know, but they open the door to it. A bunch of hosts go through, including Teddy, who Dolores puts in the sublime mm -hmm. and then it's closed off. What is she going to do with that sublime? I don't know. Yeah. So Dolores went to the forge with her, with the intention of destroying all of the copies of the guests. Right. That was her grand plan ultimately was to destroy this database. Um, and she stopped by Bernard midway awakened uh, after being, I think he shoots her, uh, or no, yes. does Charlotte shoot mm -hmm. her? Uh, he shoots her. Okay. So Bernard shoots her in the head. Bernard shoots her. She's, she stops, he stops the, the deletion of the database. Um, she's revived later. Uh, I think in the body of Charlotte at this point. Yes. Uh, which is one of the, the big reveals at the end of this, uh, the finale is it, is it shown that, um, the Charlotte Hale in the two week later timeline mm -hmm. i think is dolores throughout in charlotte hale's body so where's so right? there been two doloreses so dolores is shot by bernard in the valley beyond in the forge and then in the forge right and then the charlotte that's shown in some of the scenes that were had happened in the previous season uh, previous episodes of season two are Dolores in her body, or is that not right? I, I don't know who who is in that body, but ultimately Dolores ends up occupying a host that looks identical to Charlotte, and that host right. has already killed the real Charlotte. Yes. So the, so anyway, Charlotte Charlotte Dolores comes into the forge, uh, decides I'm not I'm not going to delete this database anymore, but I am going to pop Teddy in to the Valley Beyond because I feel sweet now. Mm hmm. Which is which is nice. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, the, one of the most human moments for Dolores in season two is after Teddy kills himself. Uh, she lays with his dead body, which I think was at the beginning of this episode. Yeah, it was very very finale. distressing. She uh, that was at the end of the of episode nine. Yeah, she and she's very very distraught. Yes, uh, and then she rises from his body and reaches into his head and does enacts one of the stupidest plot points i've ever fucking seen in a in a show where she pulls out the bullet that teddy blasted himself with which is now like a pancaked piece of metal it's completely flat uh takes her revolver and makes like she's going to put it into the revolver the camera cuts away before we can see this mechanically impossible act happen um, but she's, she's meant, it's believed that she's somehow fit, fitted the flattened piece of bullet into the revolver. How, do, how, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> how could they film that and just be okay with it? It makes no fucking, and they, it's not like, oh God, it's so frustrating because they, it's like a close up shot of her holding this broke ass, flat ass bullet with a, a bullet, you know, the chambers of a revolver fit fucking bullets they don't fit fucking pancakes in it yeah so oh on top God. like outside of like us nerding out about whether or not she could sh close the revolver with a flattened bullet in it fine you know whatever w what happens next 
is she gives that gun to William, the man in black, and sides with him, knowing that he's going to turn on her eventually. He does. He starts shooting her. Uh, he blasts the first couple of rounds out. Dolores has her pain receptors turn off, so there's no fucking deal. Um, and he gets to the busted bullet. And what doesn't happen is the hammer uselessly slaps against a piece of metal and nothing happens. Uh, the bullet somehow manages to refire <laughs> and, ex- and explodes and blasts his, blasts his hand apart. Just makes the, How did the bullet get a second charge? I don't... I don't understand. And he shot that gun like fucking 10 times because he was shooting humans first. What did she, did she, did she put it in the front of the revolver? So the bullet was in the chamber and then when fired, it slammed into the, that would then, then would have. No, cause he, he was shooting, they roll up on a, on a convoy of humans. Right. And William definitely shoots that gun. Pow, pow, yeah. On, on his horse. Yeah. I remember and then that. he gets off. And then starts shooting Dolores. Mm-hmm. This is right when they show up to the forge. Right. And he starts popping caps in Dolores. I think he gets off like three in her. Yes. So let's say, so let's say he fires five. Okay. That, that that's that's saying that in the sixth chamber was a magic bullet that shouldn't have fit in the gun in the first place. Mm-hmm. And as you said, instead of just, just nothing happening, just a useless slap of metal, it explodes the gun. <laughs> And blows his hand off. And Dolores planned it and knew all this was going to happen exactly like yeah, that. Yeah, she smirks. He was like, exactly. This is this was my plan. Mm-hmm. It's just silly. Doesn't make any sort of sense. And the, and that's one of the frustrating things is like you you in season one you would have moments where you go, huh, that doesn't feel like it makes sense or or what's going on here. And then you try to make sense of it. Uh-huh. And then and then you're given that you're given why it makes sense. Right. And season two, you're given these moments where you you walk away from it thinking, you know, where's this? Where's the sense? I, I can't make sense of that. But then you don't you don't have the the uh, gratification of of getting the sense because it's not there. Right. There's there are moments throughout Westworld in which uh, the logic is implied, and you can infer what it is um, from your previous experience with how the world works. Um, in season two, there are many moments where the logic applied in a particular scent in a particular scene doesn't gel with previously existing logic. And they'll just try to have somebody say, that's just the way it is to you. And often that person saying it to you is Bernard. He's just, he's just saying the words aloud that the writer needs you to hear so that you understand what's happening. He's like the, he's directly the narrator of many scenes. Um, this bullet scene is, is an exception, but, um, too often the writing in this season was so weak that somebody needed to tell us what was going on directly. And even when they did still didn't make any fucking sense or it was yeah cheap. Yeah. All right. So let's, uh, let's finish this episode up. Um, we're given these, uh, re- reveals, um, Dolores, there's a Dolores Charlotte running around, um, which Charlotte is now dead. The human Charlotte is now dead. Um, <clears throat> Bernard and, and Charlotte Del- Dolores, I think, well, Delard, Del- I can't, it's so <laughs> fucked up. Dolores Charlotte kills the real Charlotte. And then uh, it's revealed that Bernard had purposely uh, scrambled his own head um, so that they couldn't search his memory to, to find that that happened. Mm-hmm. Um which is why we have uh, Bernard waking up on the beach with the scrambled head. It's why you know? his his storyline has been told in broken timeline. Right. It's it's why throughout season two we have instead uh, composed host Bernard. We have broken brain muttering, rolling around in the dirt. Bernard. Yeah. Two two really negative factors about Bernard's t- t- uh, storyline this season. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, we have a bunch of hosts who left for the Valley Beyond, the Sublime, Akechita, Teddy, they're there. Um, we have a bunch of now dead hosts, which seemingly can be revived. There's a, a short scene at the end where some of the mercenaries speak to Felix and the other tech, I forget his name, um, where they tell them to uh, salvage anything they can. And during that moment, they they pan over a bunch of the hosts 
bodies in a pile and, and it's Maeve, Hector, um, the Japanese woman who they brought with them right. uh, with the bow and arrow, um, Armistice. So it, it's implied that they're going to take them at least and revive them in some regard uh, for season three. Right. Um, uh, Charlotte, who is inhabiting a... Uh, uh, or Dolores ha- inhabiting a Charlotte clone host body uh, walks out of the park um, with a bag containing uh, host pods or the modules. Like the, their brains. The brain modules. Yeah. Yeah, their brains. Um, not sure whose those are, mm-hmm. uh, who they're copies of. Um, we know that Teddy was put into the sublime, so I don't know if that's who she's carrying, but she has a seemingly a pile of them in her bag. Um and then during the process of her leaving, uh, escaping the park uh, via the mercenary gunboats, um, she runs into Stubbs, the head of security, um, who gives her this knowing look and gives has this little uh, dialogue with her about um, how he's supposed to protect hosts. Like that's his whole duty in the park is to protect the all the hosts in the park. Um and it's like this knowing discussion and look that he knows that that Charlotte is a host or knows yeah, that he, something is off with her. He implies that he's spoken to Ford directly about this exact scenario okay. and that this is as far as his work will take him, but he's going to let her go. Like that's part of his instruction or something. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I'm not sure when Stubbs would have been talking to, forward and learning all this but apparently he did and he knows that charlotte uh is actually host dolores right it's so it was just a little weird whatever i mean like a lot of the a lot of the way that this show is operating is that there are several geniuses who have grand visions who have been realizing them over the course of many years um which is very prestige television like game of thrones operates on that exact principle everybody is running game uh over the course of several years very complex uh mind games and uh westworld is dabbling in that too and a part of that uh comes into comes into play in the next scene where they arrive in the mainland her and bernard and they go to that monastery house that uh arthur or uh arnold who the fuck am we talking it was about? arnold's previous home when he was living still i think it's implied that that's where he he his family was okay thank you yeah and there is a there's a host printer there and um dolores revives bernard and has a little monologue where she says like uh you're not going to agree with the things that i do and we will be at odds and you will try to stop me and we will probably both die but that is that is the way and uh so what fucking Batman and Joker comic did they rip that from? Dude, <laughs> I don't know, man, but I'm fucking tired of prestige television, uh, like dealing with this notion of like mental gene, mental genius, like villainy mind game bullshit where everybody's operating on like the fourth plane of, of, of existence and like thinking 70, 77 moves ahead uh, and is totally indifferent to their fates i'm 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 tired of these monologues um they don't do anything except for tell the viewers what the tone of the coming episodes is going to be they don't serve any other purpose yeah i mean they just basically said okay here's what season three is going to be yeah bernard trying to stop dolores from doing whatever the fuck they want her to do in season three fine whatever dude like i'm not an idiot i'll fucking watch season three (laughs) you don't need to tell me what the fuck it's gonna be it's like when you have you ever watched cable television recently like if you watch uh any serial serialized show they're going to show not only what happened previously they're going to show you what's gonna fucking happen and then in the episode you're about to watch before it even starts yeah why just let me watch the fucking show uh oh god okay so um then the episode ends uh-huh. and we actually have an have an after credit scene uh, which is the first time they've had one of those and this is also has been the longest episode this episode was an hour and a half fuck um, man. So wow it was a fucking long long sit through um but yeah they, they have an after credit scene which they haven't had before 
um, and it shows the man in black come down the elevator finally because mm-hmm. uh, he had been seemingly on that elevator for a fucking very long time. Right. Um, and he shows up in the forge is uh, dry. completely fucked, dry. There's no water left. There's sand filling it up. Um, it looks uh, to have been abandoned for years. And he steps into the uh, a mock room that that uh, I don't know if it's the same one or if it just is similar to the one that they had shown James Delos in, uh, in earlier in the season where they were running fidelity tests on him. Uh, he steps in. He finds his daughter there who hasn't aged uh, clearly a host in, in some way because she states that they have been testing him for many, many years for fidelity. Mm-hmm. And that's where the episode truly ends. What 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 is that no whatever that's like that's not an interesting reveal uh it doesn't it doesn't make any immediate sense and it's not something that i've been considering and it's not something that really like moves me as a revelation either yeah uh yeah i mean i I, i'm not sure what it means for for all of season two i mean because a major plot in season two is william's journey to to the valley beyond mm mm-hmm how much of that is scripted part of a fidelity test that they've been running to build a copy of William? I, mean, I, I, we, I have no idea. Well, I mean, it's William has ostensibly been following clues left for everybody, but him since episode one, he's been trying to resolve this maze. He's been trying to make it to the Valley beyond. And the whole time Arnold's been telling him, um, through, through the hosts, yeah, the maze is not for you. None of this is for you. This is for the hosts. And he's like, fuck you, Arnold, over and over again. Fuck you. Um, so I don't know, like maybe he's been a host the whole time and Arnold has been testing the host's like resilience against opposition or something fucking, why would it even matter at this point? Like they've escaped and killed yeah. people. Like <laughs> they've clearly violated their directives. <laughs> I don't know. And maybe there, maybe the there's a rogue sect of hosts who are trying to build a, a William Terminator deep into the future after Dolores has taken over the world, and they need the only person that can stop her is fucking William, dude. Okay, to- so Dolores taking over the world—that's a really interesting concept, and I think it speaks to one of the biggest problems that I have with Dolores's mission. Dolores set out with this very like vicious look in her eyes. I'm gonna fucking destroy this place. I'm going to kill them all. Right. And she gets to the forge and all she does is start deleting a database of, of information. Uh, it's, it's, uh, images of people who have attended the park. Surely some of them are dead. So I understand that there is loss in not being able to make hosts out of those people, which is the ultimate goal of, uh, this project is to, uh, realize immortality by, by cloning people this way. Um, yes. but not every, not everyone in that database is dead and you're not killing them by destroying this database no i mean it d- it doesn't disrupt life it, outside of no Westworld. exactly and the thing is that this could have deeply disrupted life all she would have had to do clone the database escape use the printer in arnold's house to print copies of real people who still exist and have them go and fucking wreck shit dude like print a copy of the president have him fucking enact some wild laws you know start by like low-level cia operatives you know all kinds of fucking wild shit i think i mentioned this um on our last episode where we talked about westworld but that's the plot of the sequel to westworld of the original movie oh for real yeah so the original movie westworld um came out in the late 70s and they made a sequel to it that i don't know how much involvement michael crichton had in it Mm -hmm. but the sequel is called future world Mm -hmm. and the entire plot of that movie is them using the information they get from hosts uh in the park to build copies of them and then use them to take over like world governments that's so that's so sick and that's so like of that era the paranoid thriller like manchurian candidate shit exactly um that's that's so much more interesting than what we're being presented as what's happening now. And I really hope that they subvert that. Um, but I don't know. So I final takeaways about this season, when you're telling a nonlinear narrative, you absolutely must visually represent that the time has changed. 
often shows will change the hue of the shot. They'll make it yellow or blue or whatever to indicate it's a different timeline. Uh, they they tried to do that as a counter to what you're saying. They tried to do that with the letterbox. They, the they, letterboxing that wasn't wait the letterboxing only happened when they were in the valley beyond or that was when they're in the fucking you're right that was only when they were went into the um the other simulation which was cute what? but also inconsistent because they did letterboxing on dolores and bernard while they were looking at it right but okay. whatever right. do that or change the clothes or styling of the characters you have to represent that things are different, especially when everything takes place in metal hallways or on a desert plane. Uh, Does, yeah. I have Does no Bernard idea. ever change the suit that he's wearing? No, it's no, the same no, suit. Nobody in Bernard's storyline changes their clothes. The entire time yeah. they're wearing the same outfit. And it's, it's <laughs> infuriating because the only reason that I don't know what time we're in is because nobody's visually represented that anything's different. And it's not like the reveal of, oh, actually it's a different time is meant to happen i'm supposed to know it's not like this is some trick they're playing on me it's just bad directorial story storytelling yeah very frustrating and then lastly um war inspector uh famous uh immersive sim developer deus ex thief uh, system shock 3 now um he has a quote about immersive sims where his vision of the perfect immersive sim is not a massive game that you can do anything in it's a fully hyper realistically realized city block that you can explore and it's just dense with detail everybody living on that city block living out their full lives and the exploration of that smaller microcosm of time uh, space is super fascinating and westworld taps into that uh notion of exploring all of the things that are happening in a moment in time that season one anyway of westworld explored that in a way that's super interesting to me the, the concept of westworld explores that in a, in a way that's super interesting to me so when they you know break that loop and escape from it like because the hosts are leaving that's fine it's just inherently less interesting to me so it also had that going against it, which is, you know, its own prerogative. That's just me. Yeah. Uh, and they, you know what? They have a long time to work on this. They have a, a 2020 is when this is, show is going to come back. Um, so maybe they'll get some advice from old Specty. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Call him up. Get Spectre on the horn. Dude, if he made a Westworld game, fuck, dude. Like, you're a, you're a guest. You you start on the train, you ride in, you fucking do the whole Westworld experience, and then hey, what's this? Something funky's going on over here. Look at that! What's that? That's a maze, baby. <laughs> the maze, dude. You're a host the whole time. Oh, you get into it, dude. I know. 